To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. Should we look for unwritten principles in the Bible? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. The Bible often plainly communicates how God expects us to think and act both in our normal, everyday lives, as well as in certain unique situations. But what if the scriptures don't just come right out and speak directly to a specific thing we're dealing with? Or what if they appear to be silent about a particular topic altogether? How are we supposed to then apply God's word to our lives? Well, one very important way is to use our God-given logical reasoning while relying on the Holy Spirit to teach us to discern biblical principles, or as some call it, to principalize the scriptures. This is something you've probably seen done a million times before. You've probably even done it yourself. But when you recognize what it is you're doing, and when we learn to do it intentionally whenever we need it, it'll help protect us from misapplying God's word and can lead us into a right understanding of scripture. So today I just want to explain to you what it means to principalize scripture and then show you a few examples of how it's done. Sound good? All right. So when I say principalize scripture, this is just a shorthand way of referring to the process of identifying biblical principles that are not expressly stated in scripture. Now, this isn't the same thing as going beyond scripture, which is something we would never want to do. God forbid. But to read the word, acknowledge stated biblical truths, and then recognize biblical patterns and themes from which we can then reasonably extrapolate into a biblically-based principle. We actually see the Master Yeshua doing this very thing in Matthew chapter 12. Thanks, Yosh which recounts one of the times the Pharisees confronted him and his disciples, accusing them of violating the Shabbat. Let's look at that passage, beginning in verse 1. At that time on the Shabbatot, the Sabbaths, Yeshua went through the grain fields, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat them. And the Purushim, the Pharisees, having seen, said to him, Look! Your disciples do that which is not permitted to do on the Shabbat. And he said to them, Did you not read what David did when he was hungry and those with him? How he went into the house of God and ate the lechem hapanaim, the bread of the presence, which it is not permitted to him to eat, nor to those with him, except for the Kohanim alone, the priests. Or did you not read in the Torah? that on the Shabbatot, the Kohanim in the temple profane the Shabbat, yet are blameless. Verse 7, And if you had known what this is, I want loving kindness and not sacrifice, he's quoting from the prophet Hosea, you would have not condemned the blameless, meaning his disciples. And in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Yeshua also says, 
the Shabbat was made for man and not man for the Shabbat. So the Pharisees are accusing Yeshua's disciples of violating the Shabbat because they're plucking heads of grain, which is considered to be work. And work, according to the Torah, is forbidden on Shabbat. So what's Yeshua's biblical response to the accusation? There's no scripture for him to cite that says that plucking heads of grain on Shabbat are expressly permitted or forbidden. So what does he do? He identifies a biblical pattern that permits the violation of explicit Torah commands. Sounds crazy, right? (laughs) But check it out. First, he points to David and how, according to 1 Samuel 21, he ate the holy bread of the presence that he was not permitted to eat, according to Leviticus 24.9. Then he points to the priests who do their commanded work of making sacrifices before God every single day, including the Shabbat. And because work of any kind is a Shabbat violation, Yeshua says that the priests, therefore, profane the Shabbat with their work. And yet, because it's holy work that they're doing, Yeshua says that the priests are nevertheless blameless. And it's from the pattern established from these two scriptural principles that Yeshua then extrapolates the unstated biblical principle, which is that the Shabbat was made for man and not man for the Shabbat. And he supports this principle with the quote from Hosea, that God wants loving kindness or mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, by principalizing scripture in order to apply God's word to his situation, Yeshua established a biblical principle that says that there can be valid exceptions to the violation of explicit Torah commands when the violation is necessary to show mercy and to preserve life. That the Shabbat and the Torah aren't meant to be kept simply as an act of rigid obedience to God, but that God gave these to Israel for the direct benefit of the people. Yeshua's principle says that we're not supposed to be slaves to the Shabbat. Rather, the Shabbat is supposed to be a celebration of freedom and a blessing to us, the boundaries of which we can occasionally exceed if it means giving life that would otherwise be harmed without it. So the priests, on a rotating basis, do the atoning sacrificial work on behalf of the people. David was hungry and needed to eat. Therefore, Yeshua's disciples, because they were also hungry, were permitted in this instance to pluck grain so that they could eat. And despite that violation, like the priests, they were also blameless. And by the way, just a few verses later in Matthew 12, 12, Yeshua further clarifies this Shabbat principle when he says that it is permitted to do good on the Shabbat. So Yeshua sets the example for us by principalizing scripture. He first went to the relevant scriptures, then he recognized the pattern that they established, and finally extrapolated the biblical principle that he was able to practically apply to his situation. And because Yeshua did this for us, then we too 
can extrapolate a principle from his act of principalizing. And that is that principalizing is a valid way of understanding and applying the scriptures. Now, before I demonstrate two more examples of principalizing, I need to be clear that principalizing doesn't give us free reign over scripture. It's not license to abuse it. For instance, we can't look at how Yeshua spent time with sinners and then extrapolate a so-called principle that justifies a sinful lifestyle and the people we hang out with, right? So while we're permitted to principalize, we need to be careful, and there are limits. And I'd say that there are three main rules for principalizing that will help you stay in line with God's word. First, that the biblical principle you arrive at cannot negate what any biblical text meant to the original audience. Second, that the principle cannot appropriate or allow you to take for yourself what is meant to apply only to those originally hearing it. And third, that the principle must not contradict teachings from the rest of Scripture. So in other words, we're not free to distort or contort Scripture or take it out of context in order to get the results we want. We can't come to the Word with our preconceived ideas looking for justification through rationalized gymnastics or over-spiritualization of the Word. Okay? So, with that in mind, let's try applying this approach to Scripture and see what kind of principles we can glean. Let's start with this one. Is it ever okay to lie? Because Scripture explicitly states that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, Exodus 20.16. And in Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, it says that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, one of which is a lying tongue. And the scriptures also condemn lying elsewhere. But what if a lie would protect someone from being harmed or killed, like I don't know, say you're hiding Jews from Nazis in secret passages in your house. Would it be okay to lie in that situation? Well, do we know of any biblical examples in which a person lied in order to protect another person? And was it viewed as a righteous deed? And indeed we do, in the account of Rahab, when she hid the spies who'd been sent by Joshua. In Joshua chapter 2, it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them. So, wow, not only did Rahab lie to protect the Israeli spies, but she gave the authorities an elaborate story and completely misled them. So in this instance, was Rahab committing a sin by lying or was it actually a righteous act? Well, according to Yaakov, James, it was totally righteous. He says in chapter 2, verse 25, 
And likewise also, Rachav the prostitute, was she not by her actions declared righteous, having received the messengers and sent them out by another road. So now we have a pattern. Rahab lied and saved the lives of the spies. And James says that by her actions of hiding and protecting the spies, through lying, she was declared righteous. So from this, we can now principalize and extrapolate our biblical principle, which is that sometimes it is righteous to lie, specifically when we're trying to save someone's life. Notice that there's no implication in this that it's okay to lie in order to avoid embarrassment or responsibility or the consequences of your actions, nor for any of these things on behalf of others. And you also can't lie by denying Yeshua, even if it means saving someone's life or even your own. This biblical principle only says that lying is sometimes righteous when you're trying to protect a life. And to be clear, the Bible never literally says the words, it's okay to lie, or it's sometimes okay to lie, or anything even close to that. The only reason that we know that God permits lying in extreme circumstances, and not only permits it, but considers it to be a righteous act, is because we went to the scriptures, recognized the biblical pattern or theme, and then inferred from the text in what situations lying would be the right thing to do. Let's look at one more example where we can demonstrate principalizing using an extremely controversial contemporary topic that probably everyone has an opinion about, and that's abortion. So the question is, is it okay for a woman to have an abortion? One side of the debate says, no, abortion is wrong because abortion is murder. And the Bible says absolutely clearly in Exodus 20.13 in Deuteronomy 5.17, you shall not murder. You can't take another person's life. And we'll need to save the discussion of killing versus murder for some other time. But for our purposes right now, all we need to know is that the Bible says that murder is wrong. On the other side of the debate, however, they say, yes, a woman can have an abortion. That it's her body to do with as she wishes. Because what you have in there isn't another person. And it's impossible to murder a clump of cells or a parasite or a tumor. So at least in terms of rhetoric, that's what the abortion debate comes down to, whether or not the pregnant woman has a person in there. So the first thing we need to ask is, does the Bible speak at all to the issue of elective abortion? And I'm not going to get into rare cases like when a mother's life is in danger. All we're going to ask right now is if you're pregnant for whatever reason and you don't want to have the baby, does the Bible speak to whether it's right or wrong to have that kind of abortion? And the answer is no, the Bible doesn't speak to it. The subject never comes up. So then we need to ask, is there anywhere in the Bible that could give us an indication whether that thing growing in there has any value or that God considers it? a person? And the answer is, yes, there is. In Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 22, we learn about the value that God places on the life of the unborn. Here's what Moses says. And when men struggle with each other and strike a pregnant woman, 
and her children come out, but there is no harm. The man is absolutely to be fined according to the husband of the woman, and he must give payment through the judges. But if there is harm, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. So Moses is giving commands here concerning a situation in which two men would be fighting with each other, and in the midst of the struggle, a pregnant woman also gets hit, such that the child she's carrying, quote, comes out of her. Now, what does Moses mean here by come out? Well, some translations, like the 1985 JPS Tanakh, say that come out means miscarry, which means the child comes out dead. And when the passage is understood this way, that striking the woman causes her to have a miscarriage, but there is no harm, then this forces an interpretation that the no harm phrase refers only to the mother and has nothing to do with the child. This would then mean that the unborn child has no life value, that a miscarried baby is not the death of a person. But not only does such an understanding violate the plain sense of the passage, it's clear from elsewhere in Scripture, such as in Genesis 25, that come out means was born. In verses 24 through 26, employing the exact same Hebrew as in Exodus 21, it says, And Rebekah's days to bring forth were fulfilled, and look, twins were in her womb, and the first came out, all red and hairy as a robe, and they called his name Esau. And afterwards, his brother had come out, and his hand was taking hold on the heel of Esau, and one called his name Jacob. So come out in Exodus 21 means exactly that, no more and no less. As a result of being struck by the men during the fight, it causes the child to come out through the birth canal of the mother. Then Moses lays out two scenarios for us. In the first, the child comes out, but there's no harm done to it or to the woman. The baby was born prematurely, and both are alive and well. In this case, the man who hit the woman will merely have to pay a fine. But in the second scenario, the child or the mother is harmed. The hit causes a spontaneous abortion or miscarriage or stillbirth, or even the mother is killed or hurt in some way. And in that case, Moses says, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, and so on. In other words, Moses is saying that if hitting the mother causes the child to come out and it dies, then the man who caused it will face the death penalty for murder, life for life. This says that the baby's life is worth the same as the man's. That in the eyes of the Torah, from the standpoint of making restitution, that unborn baby was a person with the same value as any person. And the one who took that life must pay for it with his own life, just as in any murder, according to Torah. So while this passage doesn't speak to elective abortion as we have it today, it does speak to the value and worth of the life 
of an unborn child. According to the Torah, that unborn child is a person, and causing its death warrants the death penalty. And if there were any question about at what stage of development God considers that baby a person, we need only to look to Jeremiah 1.5, where God says to the prophet, Before I formed you in the belly, I had known you. And before you came out of the womb, I set you apart. God plans, plants, forms, and knows every single precious little life. And he considers each one of us a person from before we were formed through the moment we were born. So now we have our pattern from scripture, which again is not explicitly about abortion, but related to it in that it involves a pregnant mother, her unborn child, and that child's death as the direct result of another person's actions. In the Torah, the death of an unborn child caused by striking his pregnant mother requires capital punishment for the one who hit her. And taking life for life is the penalty for murder. And with that, we now also have what we need to principalize, to extrapolate our biblical principle and make application. And that is that it's wrong to have an abortion because causing the death of an unborn child is murder. That unborn child has value and worth. It is alive and it is a person. And by having an abortion, that person is being killed. And while the Bible never literally says the words abortion is murder, by going to the scriptures, recognizing the pattern of similarities between abortion and the passage in Exodus 21, we were able to extrapolate and infer God's view on unborn life and apply it to the issue of abortion. So that's what proper principalization looks like. And we can use this approach on pretty much any topic you can think of. What should we do when we're feeling helpless and alone? Psalm 142 can yield some biblical principles. What kinds of music should we not listen to? Or what types of movies or TV should we not watch? Look at Philippians 4.8 and Psalm 101, verses 3 and 4, just for starters. And while the scriptures never say, do watch this or don't watch that, through both logical reasoning and the teaching of the Spirit, we can discern biblical principles that relate to what we see with our eyes and the things we think about and meditate on, and then apply that to movie watching or any entertainment for that matter. Just because the scriptures don't directly address a specific topic doesn't mean they don't have anything to say about it. Because as long as we're handling the scriptures with care, as long as we aren't ripping the scriptures from their original context and our conclusions aren't contradicting God's word, then all we have to do is go to the scriptures, recognize the patterns and themes and how they relate to the question we're asking, and then extrapolate the unstated biblical principle that will tell us the right thing to do. In Psalm 119, verses 26 and 27, it says, My ways I have recounted, and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Cause me to understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wonders. God's word 
is wonderful and alive. Yet he never meant for the Bible to speak directly to every question it would ever be asked. Instead, through his spirit, God's living word would continue to speak through its unwritten yet explicit instructions. And we can discern those because encoded within his precepts are his perfect patterns and his principles. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI through your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to rate, review, share, follow, or subscribe to the podcast to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.